Hello, Media Able listeners. I decided it was finally time to tackle Game of Thrones, but my guest and I had so much to say about it that I ended up deciding to divide it into a two-part episode. So you're now listening to part one, and part two will be released a week from today on August 15th, and what would normally be an off week. However, the regular schedule will continue with another new episode coming out on August 22nd. So please enjoy part one of Media Evil's take on Game of Thrones and keep an eye out for part two next weekend. Also, I say this in the episode as well, but please do just be aware that spoilers for all eight seasons of Game of Thrones abound. So uh, you might want to hold off on this particular episode and the continuation next week if you have not yet seen Game of Thrones and would like to do so unspoiled. All right, thanks for listening to Media Evil and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'll be talking about one of the best-known examples of medieval-inspired media, the HBO series Game of Thrones, and uh, to some extent also the book series on which it is based, A Song of Ice and Fire. And as my guest today, I have the person with whom I first got to know both the books and the show, and with whom I have been talking about Game of Thrones for, at this point, I'm pretty sure about a decade, my mom, Beth Greenfeld. Hi, mom. Hello, Sarah. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? I'm sure some of them remember you from the timeline episode, but if anybody's uh, just starting to listen, they might not. So, Well, here I am. I'm Sarah's mom. And for many, many years, I've always liked to have the two of us have a mother-daughter book club. Mm -hmm. Since Sarah got interested in medieval stuff, we read a lot of medieval, what do you call that, popular novels that used medieval mm-hmm. historical fiction. Historical fiction. And at some point, I got interested in some of the people from the Wars of the Roses because they're underdogs. And then in 2011, I think, there was all this hoopla 
that the fifth book of uh, Song of Ice and Fire was coming out. Mm -hmm. And Sarah and I decided we wanted to read that for our mother-daughter book club. Though, of course, or well, read the series. Yeah, of course, we we had to start with book one, which we'd never (laughs) heard of. (laughs) And we just ran through the five books. And then I guess Sarah might have been ahead of me with the movies because I didn't have streaming. I didn't have HBO. So I had to wait till every year was over and then buy the DVDs and then start (laughs) watching them. Except for the sixth year where I'd call Sarah up and she would tell me the plots. (laughs) Right. So, and then finally, I guess after that, got HBO and because I didn't want to be the only person in the world a year behind. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, we have been talking about the book and the movie for years and years and years. I remember I would tell you the plots, but we had to be careful because dad did not want to know what happened before he has seen it. So, Or our friend John, because some of these we did at cafes in Europe. Right. (laughs) And all all of Paris could hear what happened that day on the Game of Thrones if they were listening. Right. (laughs) And I think that actually was the year when I was very disappointed that I had just narrowly missed being around during Game of Thrones filming, although I'm sure in practice it would have been a pain in the neck. But uh, that was, I think, the season that was partly filmed in Girona. You had left before, because I remember your your Facebook post that said, I live in Westeros. Right, because they announced it when I was, they announced that as a filming location when I was living there, but I think I left in July and they started filming in September. And last year when um, Americans were still not persona non grata in foreign countries, your father and I went to Ireland, Northern Ireland, and um, went to a whole lot of the Game of Thrones tours in Northern Ireland and the sites, and it, it was just right. wonderful. Game of Thrones was on HBO from 2011 to 2019. It lasted eight seasons. The books uh, first began to be published in 1996, are not finished, and I would not bet a lot of money on them ever being finished. He swears, he swears that because of COVID-19, he's making great great headway on um, book six. I will believe that when I see it. (laughs) (laughs) But as uh, at uh, date of recording, and I'm sure also date of release, there are five books and no precise date for book six, not to mention book seven. (laughs) Right. There are chapters here and there, but whether they'll even end up in the final product is unknown. Right. So a couple of things about the format of today's episode are going to be a little different. One of that is that I am not going to give that full of a cast list because the cast list for Game of Thrones is its own entire Wikipedia page. (laughs) But there's only one character played by two different actors, yes or no? Yeah, that I know of at least. Uh, okay. Yeah, Dario Naharis is the only one who I know of who's played by two different actors. Uh, I can't promise for some of the minor characters. The So the people that I'll mention uh, are the people that I'd actually heard of when this whole thing got started, which was, of course, Sean Bean playing Ned Stark. And really, uh, so first of all, so everybody, there's going to be spoilers, <laughs> just general spoilers throughout. The fact that Sean Bean was cast as Ned Stark should have been a clue to all of the people who had not read the books that he wasn't going to make it the whole se- the whole series. <laughs> 
So I'd heard of him. I'd heard of Peter Dinklage as Tyrion Lannister. Uh, Michelle Fairley, who plays Catelyn Stark, I actually knew because she was a villain in a season of 24. Hmm. Yeah. It's very hard to watch British TV and not come across, oh, damn, what's his name? Charles Dance? Charles Dane? Right. Dance, He's in everything. He's in yeah. every single series on, on British TV. Yeah, including actually one that has been covered on the podcast. He was in the uh, the BBC show, the BBC Merlin show, okay. which was kind of funny because he had like a, like a one episode arc or maybe two episodes and was clearly a more talented actor than anyone in the oh. cast. I remember you saying that, yeah. I knew Aidan Gillen, play, who played uh, uh, Peter Baelish slash Littlefinger because he was in The Wire. Oh, we had tickets to see him in Ireland at the Abbey, but that trip had to get canceled because of the virus. Right, yeah. But on The Wire, he played the thinly veiled version of your former mayor, Martin O'Malley. Governor. Or your for- yeah, governor. or your former governor, I mean, <laughs> uh, back when he was mayor of Baltimore. Yes, and wanted to be president. Right, and so he played uh, Tommy Carcetti was the character's name, but it was really just a oh. very thinly veiled, yeah, they made him Italian, but it was really just a very thinly veiled version of Martin O'Malley. And, uh, you know, he was very good, but it was very weird to then hear him have a British accent. Right, and you're going to tell him where you last saw Theon Greyjoy? Am I going to say where I last saw Theon Greyjoy? Wasn't he in Elizabeth? Oh, yeah. So that actually wasn't the last. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Theon Greyjoy, uh, Alfie <laughs> Allen, who plays Theon Greyjoy, I just keep seeing everywhere now. Yeah. And so he was uh, he was in Elizabeth and he was in the other Boleyn girl. Oh, wow. He was in Elizabeth with his sister. And they both played yes. the little Arundel children. You went to his castle. Yeah. So they were the little Arundel children. So not actually recognizable. I just saw it when I was looking at the cast list later. But by the time he's in the other Boleyn girl, which is a few years after that, but a few years before Game of Thrones, he's old enough that you can tell it's him. And he's plays this, you know, basically nothing character. He's like a messenger. He has maybe two scenes. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there saying, I think I said out loud, like alone to my dog and cat, is that Theon fucking Greyjoy? <laughs> That's his name, yes. <laughs> and of course, Natalie Dormer. Right, who uh, we knew from the Tudors, uh, from the very short-lived period in which I watched the Tudors before God, it drove me insane and I couldn't watch it anymore. That was one of those knowing something about the history made it totally unwatchable. Oh, yeah. And uh, the other fun one that I found out later in terms of casting that I had seen before but did not know at the time is Rory McCann, who plays the Hound, plays, uh, oh, God, what's his name? Uh, Mike, I think Michael is his name in uh, the kind of big guy who only says Yarp and Narp in Hot Fuzz. Oh, I'd see that movie again just for that. But, you know, I'd seen Hot Fuzz a million times. And, uh, you know, I've obviously spent a lot of time watching The Hound. And it wouldn't have occurred to me in a million years. And then at some point I just glanced at the cast list and saw saw that and was very surprised. Okay. No, I think we've done a great deal, great job with the cast. Yeah. So, and then of course, I'll just uh, very quickly mention the people who nobody had heard of when this started, but who have since, uh, you know, become uh, kind of developed much more of a career. Lena Headey, who plays Cersei, this has definitely been a kind of good jumping off point, it seems like for her, it seems like she's doing more things. She'd been in uh, 300 before this, Hmm. but not a ton, I don't think of other kind of big name roles. And then the young people, uh, Kit Harrington as Jon Snow, Amelia Clark as Daenerys Targaryen, Sophie Turner as Sansa Stark, and Maisie Williams as Arya Stark uh, seem to be the people who are actually kind of pivoting into having real careers based on this. Good. 
Mostly. I actually don't think Kit Harrington is very talented, to be honest. Oh, no, but um, people... <laughs> so one <laughs> of the things when I... Uh, I've told you this before. When I was in going through one of the scenes, The Forest of Tullymore, with a guide, uh-huh. and he said, well, this is, this is the stump Kit Harrington sat on. And then he said, tons of women on my tours, and lots of men... They, like, you know, want to go and, like, sit on it and sniff it and rub it. <laughs> Everybody like Kit Harrington. <laughs> he's, he's good looking, but, yeah, yeah I, I, don't, I don't think he's very talented. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that is going to be different about this particular episode is that I refuse to do a plot summary because <laughs> a plot summary of eight seasons of Game of Thrones would take, like, what, five hours, six hours? No, I think it would be way more than that, especially if you would jump back and forth with the five books. It, it could take days. It yeah. could take longer than the Battle of Blackwater. <laughs> Probably would take longer than the Battle of Blackwater. Given that, I am going to be dropping the usual format. We're mostly just going to be having an informal chat about... Uh, Game of Thrones and what we enjoy about it and what we don't enjoy about it and ways in which it intersects with history or doesn't quite intersect with history. There will not be a plot summary. However, as said before, there will be spoilers. There will be spoilers going all the way through the eighth season. So if you have not seen Game of Thrones, would like to see Game of Thrones and would like to not know what happens in advance, if you have somehow managed to not know what happens already uh, and still live in the world and have the internet then uh, you might want to hold off on this particular episode. Because, How many uh, people said, that follow this do you think have not heard of the Red Wedding? I feel like it can't be that many. Like, I feel like probably basically none, but it's my, I feel like it's my duty to warn people. Because your father heard about it and he hadn't read one word, seen a minute, just it was part of the culture at the time. Right. And I actually do still feel terrible that uh, <laughs> I can't even remember his was. It was like a friend of a friend. I actually spoiled the Red Wedding for him. <laughs> Because this was before it had happened in the show. And I think he was reading the books. And so he was like, I think he was like in the middle of the third book. So he was really getting there. And I didn't say everything, but I just kind of burst out like, well, Rob Stark dies. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, I still feel very guilty about that. (laughs) Although to be fair, based on how Rob Stark was going, I feel like everybody should have guessed Rob Stark was going to die. Well, it depends on a bunch of things. If you knew at the very beginning that there were similarities to the Wars of the Roses, mm-hmm. you would have known that there would be some repercussions to his not marrying the Walder Frey girl. But nobody, right. I don't think, could have guessed the Red Wedding. Right. So actually, why don't we go ahead and move on to actually talking about the Wars of the Roses stuff. I think it's going to keep coming up uh, as we discuss. So I think maybe we should go ahead and talk about that as being, to some extent, the inspiration for the kind of jumping off point. I do just actually want to note that I noticed ages ago and snorted about the fact that Stark and Lannister are a very, very thinly veiled, uh, like barely changed version of York and Lancaster. And so, of course, the Wars of the Roses, uh, just basically the, what it is, for those who have no idea, is that it is a century-long English civil war between sort of two families, but it ends up becoming much more complicated. 
and uh, but the kind of families who are the kind of big claimants for the English throne are the Yorks and the Lancasters. And begins with the kind of with the well, basically begins with the murder of a king and ends with the murder of a king. So George R. R. Martin has said that he wanted to write a historical novel based on the Wars of the Roses, but that he would have more fun and more leeway if he just made it a fantasy and could do what he wanted. Which I get. Yeah. So people have been casting around since then for historical parallels to the Wars of the Roses. Right. Though it's obvious that he'll take from anything in history that catches his fancy. Yeah, I mean, as we'll definitely get to later, there's a number of things that have obvious parallels that have nothing to do with the time or place of the Wars of the Roses. I don't see how anybody could look at how John dies and not say, Julius Caesar. Just can't, 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 can't do it. And that, of course, is the end of the books, but be that as it may. Wars of the Roses between the Yorks and the Lancasters, which to my lifelong shame, I didn't realize were very thinly veiled (laughs) references to Starks and Lannisters. (laughs) It starts, you can date it either from when Edward III died, but most people don't, and we'll just start it with the uh, major civil war, and let's call it 1455. Oh, you would start, oh, okay. Many people started in 1399 when Richard II is deposed, And murdered by Henry the Fourth. Okay, because that's actually when I would have started. But, but when, I guess not when Edward the Third dies and his grandson takes over, the four brothers are quarreling and infighting, and who's going to get to boss around the king most, et cetera, et cetera, right. et cetera. So, and some people don't like Richard II and call him the Mad King, and then Henry the Fourth is Robert Baratheon. So you could start it there if you wanted. But it's right. it's easier to just start it in 1455. Okay. When most of these people are around. So Henry VI is the king. He's been king since he was like nine months old. Right. They married him off to some French woman, Marguerite d'Anjou. And he is, as kings and men go, pretty useless. Mm-hmm. She's pretty much running things. She gets pregnant, whether by him or not. Who knows? And the shades of Cersei. Yeah, and he totally loses his sanity. So he's arguably Robert Baratheon and Ares Targaryen are a kind of separated out version of some of the right. features of uh, right. Henry the Sixth. Right. Henry Henry the Sixth could be the Mad King, and he he has his son called Edward the uh, Edward of Westminster who's horrible, that's really all you need to say about that. One thing I wanted to quickly add about him, Henry as the possible parallel for the Bad King, is also that he is somebody who is known to have a kind of family background with a potential history of mental illness, and that now I can't remember if it's his grandfather or exactly who it is, but he is uh, related to one of the the, the French king who is uh, also seems to have had some episodes of serious <laughs> mental illness. Uh, I'm Charles only laughing because his name is Charles, which gives you very little information. <laughs> yes. Charles yes. the Mad King, married to somebody whose name may begin with a J or maybe not. Yes, but Henry's mother, Henry the Sixth's mother was some French royalty right. or other. At any rate, the Henrys, the Lancasters, come from John Gaunt, who is okay. the fourth son of Edward III. 
Yeah. The Yorkists come from both. No, because he's the third. Third son. The Yorkists come from the second and the fourth. Right. So they really clearly have the right, but they didn't depose anybody, so they sort of lost out to the Lancasters. So Richard, Duke of York, is a very nice man, and he would like to be king, but he's not. So he's named Lord Protector, and he makes a deal with the government when Henry is out of things, or with Henry, that he will be Henry's heir. <laughs> that Henry, who doesn't really recognize his son as his own, maybe because of his mental problems, maybe because he knows his wife, that Richard, Richard Duke of York and his family will be the heirs when Henry VI dies. Right. Henry VI comes out of his mental stupor, and that gets abrogated. Mm-hmm. And then there are all these wars really run by Margaret of Anjou on one side and the Yorkists on the other. Richard the Duke of York is killed in a battle, mm-hmm. and his son Edmund, his second son, he, he lost. He's just standing there on a bridge waiting to be taken prisoner, and they, they just cut his head off. And yeah. um, it was something you're not supposed to do. I mean, for the nobility in particular, that if the no, that when you have nobility who kind of surrender through proper channels, it's, yeah, it's you're, that, you're, you're no longer fighting a battle. It's a prisoner. Yeah. So you're not supposed to be just be going around behaving prisoners, let alone 17-year-old boys. So they take his head, they take his father's head, and they put them on pikes at Micklegate Bar in York. So it goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Everybody's trying to get to London, and the eldest son of Richard, Duke of York, called Edward, he gets to London, Marguerite Anjou, it's sort of been going, but they said, you're a French bitch, we don't like you, we're not letting you into London. And even though Edward <laughs> lost his previous battle, Edward comes to London and they open the doors. Right. Because they like him. Very nice guy. Very cute. Very nice. And the Londoners pretty consistently often in uh, kind of battles between English kings very much just sort of do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. And that was it. When they opened the gates. I mean, I suppose money could break and nobody was laying siege London. At any rate, so he's there. They sort of offered him the crown. And then in 1461, they have Towton which is the absolute bloodiest battle ever fought on English soil. Mm-hmm. And they are literally still finding bodies. Right. And the bodies they have found show people have whacking them in the head even after they were dead. It was nasty. But at any yeah. rate, in part, thanks to the Earl of, this is the problem. Mm-hmm. It's written work. It's pronounced work. Right, it's as the so, English do. Yeah, so I will probably say Warwick, Worcester, Warwick, etc. And then everybody can, you know, write in and complain. At any rate, so Warwick is on his side. They win Towton. Edward is the king. And everything is great for like 10 years. Then for various reasons, Warwick defects. He collects the third brother of the next brother of Edward. And Edward is deposed, they go to Burgundy, then they come back. (laughs) (laughs) Then in 1483, Edward just dies, though nobody (laughs) knows why. It might have been, you know, cirrhosis. By that time, he'd been, like, womanizing, drinking and eating much of the time. But at any rate, they're back and forth now. He's fine. He's, He's been king. He dies. 
somebody comes forth and tells the next brother who's still alive, Richard, that this will sound familiar, that Edward had had a pre-contract and wasn't mm -hmm. really allowed to marry Elizabeth Woodville, that he married because he didn't feel like marrying the French princess that he was supposed mm -hmm. to marry, which is one of the reasons all his allies left him. And mm -hmm. they tell him his children are all illegitimate. They can't be king. And right. the parliament passes, you'll have to correct me on this, Titulus Regius. That's how yeah, it's spelled, right. Titulus Regius, yeah. that disinherits the boys because they're not legitimate. Mm -hmm. And Richard III ends up taking the crown. And then a pretender from across the sea who claims he's descended from King Arthur and has a red dragon on his coat of arms. Like, who had a three-headed dragon on red dragon on her banner? Well, he only, he, King Arthur only had one head and uh, Henry... <laughs> Henry Tudor, who's a total pretender, has no right to the throne. He comes with his foreign guys and beats Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth. Well, his claim is through his mother, right? Who's descended from that third of the sons, John of Gaunt. The problem is John of Gaunt had a wife. She died. Then he had another wife. I guess she died. Though her descent, the descendants from those two are royals from Castile and Portugal, and they have a claim to the right. throne, though they don't seem to notice. John of God spends 25 years having an affair with Catherine Swinford. They seem <laughs> to have been very happy together. I think that's the Catherine from the Anya Seton book, Catherine. Right. And they have however many children they have, and they are illegitimate. Right. They are eventually legitimized. Yeah. But there is still an act of parliament that says that even though they're legitimized, they can never, never, never be the rulers of England. And that was never, right. never, never repealed. Right. And that's where his mother comes from. Right. And his father is a Welsh nobody. His, fa his grandfather, I think. Well, his father's also a Welsh nobody. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so is his uncle. But no, that's... The father is the... Okay. So... Although, yes, the father who is the one who... married Catherine of Valois? Henry, yeah, so her, Catherine, Catherine of Valois, Valois Henry VI's mother. Then yes. her husband dies, and she has an affair with this Welch guy. I think they do get married. They do. So he's the Tudor guy, and, Hen, the, and then Henry the, I guess, seventh comes from him. But Henry Tudor comes from across the sea and beats Richard in 22nd of August, 1485 at Bosworth. And they always said that they threw Richard into the river, but it seems to be a lie. Mm -hmm. Not the first, not the last lie, Henry Tudor tells. The monks, I think, or somebody took Richard's body and buried right. it in what is now a parking lot. And that was discovered four years ago or something like that. And then Henry Tudor just does something disgusting. He says, well, I didn't become king when I beat Richard at Bosworth. I really became king the day before the battle. So if you right. fought against me at the battle, you're a traitor. Right. But remember when we met the descendant of somebody who fought for Richard at Bosworth when we yes. were buying books in London? Yes. I'm actually just going to quickly mention the thing that you didn't mention and just because again I know why you didn't mention it because you don't like it but people you know it'll be familiar to people and so they need to have it mentioned 
Richard is Richard III, who was killed at the Battle of Bosworth, is subsequently accused by Tudor supporters of having murdered these two sons of his brother Edward, who were declared to be illegitimate. So if you have heard of the princes in the tower, that's uh, who this refers to. And that's why Richard III in uh, the writings of Shakespeare, who is, of course, uh, essentially, you know, he's supporting a Tudor monarch and is basically a propagandist. Uh, that's why he presents Richard III as very much a kind of unequivocal villain. Right. So the, the princes were brought to the tower because that's really where people were. I mean, right. It's not only it was it's not never a prison. Only a prison. That's where Anne Boleyn was for her coronation. It was a palace as much it's as a anything palace, else. Yeah. And after a certain time, nobody saw the kids. For a while, they had seen them playing on Tower Green, like real mm -hmm. exactly the place where they then cut people's heads off. But it's also a place for kids to play when they're not cutting <laughs> right. people's heads off. And then at some point, nobody saw them again. And many people have always said Richard III killed them, though we had no reason to because Parliament had already declared them illegitimate. They were four of the children. Their mother didn't seem to be really worried about Richard. She sent her three daughters to stay with him. Right. And they have the same legal rights as, as their brothers do. If they were killed, there are certainly a number of other candidates, including Henry Tudor's mother. And then it really, I mean, people gossip, but it really got um, a life of its own from a book by the sainted Thomas More, who was yes. like five, but makes believe he was there. <laughs> and then Shakespeare totally vilifies Richard III. If you can think of something bad that occurred when he was alive, he's blamed for it. Right. So yeah, so that was just something that I, uh, you know, people should certainly kind of have mentioned. And, okay. and there are, because I think, especially because also there are a number of kind of potential parallels that kind of fit in in odd places to potentially the princes in the tower, so. Right. So one of the weird things about the parallels is that, that he takes uh -huh. this piece of a famous Wars of the Rose, Wars of the Roses, right. and puts it in this character. Then he puts and takes a different little piece and puts it in this character. So there's no true, absolute one-on-one -on -one correlation. So I might as well start with with Richard. There are at least three characters in uh, Game of Thrones, maybe four, that are based on different aspects of Richard the Third. The first is Ned Stark. Mm -hmm. The noble, honorable men from the north. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so New York, of course, being in northern England. Yes, though it's interesting. Until Richard III, York and much of the north went for the Lancaster. Right. So, yeah, the, York was not always Ricardian and Yorkist. I was very surprised. In some ways, I actually think the extreme regionalism and uh, and elements of the regionalism, I actually don't think have a lot in common with England in the 15th century. Mm -hmm. I think it actually looks much like more like the Iberian Peninsula or, or the Italian Peninsula. But the heads of his father and brother were on Nickelgate Bar in York for months, if not years. Margaret Andrew right. was not there. There was not a reason in the world the people of York could not have just taken them down. And nobody mm -hmm. did. Yeah. Now, of course, the whole place is unbelievably pro-Richard III, but they certainly right. weren't before he was sent there to, you know, tame them. But at any rate, so the first one is Ned Stark. The noble honorable man. 
King of the North. King of the North. He actually was called Lord of the North. That was one of his titles. <laughs> it actually is. I remember uh, I was. I took a bus to, not directly to York, but I took a bus to Leeds for a conference and uh, took this like interminable bus ride from London, which I never should have decided was a good idea. But I took this bus ride and I remember though, be it being like, very interesting the extent to which you really do enter and it like it says the north in like you know in like all caps on the english road signs uh you know on the highway as you you know as you get into that area and it like it feels very weirdly like oh this is what would happen with westeros in the 21st century <laughs> yeah no i love it because you know they're on the right side there though they did let you vote they had uh, up in Micklegate Bar. They had they had something. They had an exhibit, very low key, cheap exhibit. But at the end of it, you could vote who you thought really murdered the princes. Right. <laughs> but yeah, the poor princes. Yeah, even now though, they're lying about them. The last time we went to the tower, the guide said, "Oh yeah," and they found the bodies and they proved it was the princes because they did a DNA test. It's just a lie. Elizabeth did not agree. Right. No DNA. They were both named as regents on the deathbed mm -hmm. of their various kings. Mm -hmm. What's his name? Baratheon said to Ned Stark, you can be the regent. And Edward IV did the same thing. Both of the men declared the boys illegitimate mm -hmm. and said that the next brother in line is the true king. It just so happened that when Richard said that, he was the next he brother He was the brother in line. <laughs> So it, as much as I like Richard, it comes off a little less selfless. It, but. it is, it is. Allegedly, they had try to talk him into it, but somebody's got to be king, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And Ned Stark is also linked with the Richard Duke of York because they're all noble, decent people. And mm -hmm. the hand, that also the protector of the realm. At any rate, so Ned Stark is the first one. Yay, Ned. The second one is Stannis Baratheon, because mm -hmm. he was the next in line, and he's the right. one who said, hey, I just found out these kids are illegitimate. I win. I'm the next king. Yeah. <laughs> and he was, he was a great military leader. He, has, he seems to have certain personality characteristics with Richard. Letter of the law, guys. Uh -huh. That horrible thing where Davos keeps saying, isn't Stannis wonderful? He cut off my fingers. Because that was the law. Right. <laughs> so right. they're both very loyal to their brothers, Stannis and Richard. And then you have the succession crises, and it's a mess. The difference between Stannis and Richard III is that Stannis actually killed his brother. <laughs> right. And well, not that brother, the other brother. He killed the next brother. Yeah, Remy. Right. And while Richard is accused of killing his brother George, comma, Duke of Clarence, thanks to Shakespeare, he did not. Right. The third is, okay, so Stannis is, quote, the historical Richard III, mm -hmm. and Tyrion is, quote, the Shakespearean Richard III. I mean, right. Shakespeare made Richard into this vile hunchback. And at least at that time, if there's something that wrong with you, you're probably evil too. I don't know whether right. That is the belief yeah. that physical deformities were a manifestation right. of internal evil, right. essentially. Easy to demonize. And then I guess yeah. when they dug him up, they found out he had scoliosis. Right. But it's also proven that all the oil paintings of Richard that we have were doctored by the Tudors. 
to make mm-hmm. one shoulder really much higher. I mean, they can prove that with oil painting, radiographs, or whatever they use. Right. So even though, obviously, you know, if he were in some ways, uh, you know, disabled, obviously that would have been fine and all good, And but there's also no evidence that he was in a visibly noticeable way. Right. He probably was. I think with the scoliosis, it was probably a one shoulder, but not like it is. But that it was subsequently dramatically exaggerated. I mean, I can still see the last times I saw Michael Moriarty, you know, one hand dragging on the floor and the other side like this. No, not good. So they both have physical issues. Tyrion and Richard III, they're both talented administrators. They're both hands or protectors of their nephews. They were both charged with killing their nephews, but as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned, Tyrion didn't, neither Richard III. <laughs> you know, we, we've already talked about Richard III, and Tyrion right. is, in fact, exonerated by things. Right. I mean, he, yeah. I mean, we know that he's not the one who was responsible. They Although both, if he had been, you really wouldn't have blamed him. Right. They both did, no, it would have been a mitzvah. They both <laughs> did one thing that's very discomforting. Tyrion gets Varys killed. And yeah. whether or not Varys was really a traitor, which he probably was, it was still, it shouldn't have been done. And Richard III did the same, was right before he was king, with his friend Hastings, who mm-hmm. was a traitor, and he was in cahoots with Jane Shore, we'll get to her later, and Elizabeth Woodville, who's Edward IV's wife, and they're running messages back and forth. To, to kill Richard and uh, right. put the kids back on the throne. And they're having a what we call a privy council meeting, but it wasn't called mm-hmm. that yet, I don't think. And he says, Hastings, you did this. And Hastings says, yes, I did. And Richard says, you're a traitor. Take him out to Tower Green and, and cut his head off. Mm-hmm. And they said, we don't have a block. Oh, not ready. He says, find something. <laughs> and it's... It, it, <laughs> It just wasn't right. And the Ricardians worked so hard to say, well, he had to do it in the heat of the moment because if he thought about it, he wouldn't have done it. Well, you know, it's fine. <laughs> but that, that, that was an ugly moment for both of them, killing someone they had been so close to for so many years. It was bad. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the Richard III characters. Yeah. Edward IV, who was king before Richard III, started out his life, oh, he was young, he was gorgeous, everybody loved him, he won all these battles, he, he, you know, he overthrew the bad king and became the good king, he was great. The early Edward is the early Robert Baratheon. Right. Then Edward screws up and marries Elizabeth Woodby, he didn't think he screwed up, but anyway, to some time it cost him his throne, cost him his allies, yada yada, so that Edward is obviously Rob Stark. Right. Except that Rob Stark really lost literally everything, and Edward just loses his throne for a while, and then he gets it back. And gets it back, right. Seems to have loved his wife very much. But he still womanizes. He's got a gazillion, what do you call them? Mistresses? I don't like that word. Side pieces? He's sleeping with a million women, you know, in his castle. He's not going to, he's not renting a pied a terre. They just come to the... And then he's got a million girl girlfriends. <laughs> he's got a million girlfriends. He drinks too much. He's, I know you say it's fat shaming, but he's getting fat, stupid, drunk, womanizing. And then 
wow, he's Robert Baratheon again. Right. <laughs> Except that I think he and his wife really did love each other, which you can hardly say for, for Cersei. But oh, yeah, no. so he sort of starts out as Robert, gets into Rob Stark for a while, and then Robert is him at the end. Yeah. The early him and the later. The other giant parallel is Cersei. The mm-hmm. problem with Cersei is that her arc is, I am like a medieval queen. I don't have any power. I had an arranged marriage to this guy, whether because he loves someone else or whatever. He certainly doesn't love me. Our sex life sucks. But one way or another, I have these children Mm-hmm. And I love my children, and even if I didn't love my children, if I put my little kids on the throne, I will have power behind me. Mm-hmm. From the Wars of the Roses, she really is the same as Marguerite Anjou. Right. Both of them are hated. They're just not nice women. There's something about, what, the purple purple wedding where Marjorie says, let's give the food left over to the poor, and Cersei right. won't do it. No, nobody likes either of these women, but they're mm-hmm. obviously very, very, very talented mm-hmm. in their power. Extremely ways. intelligent and yes. capable administrators. Absolutely. And good politicking. And they both have truly hideous sons. Right. So Edward of Westminster, who I can't remember how old Joffrey went when he dies. Edward of Westminster, thank God, never had any power. But even, I guess, the ambassador of Milan says this kid talks of nothing but wanting to kill people and cut off their heads. <laughs> right. You know, he was a horrible person, The this yeah. Edward of Westminster. So clearly very akin to Joffrey. Right. But because of the power dynamics and of what women could do and couldn't do and the problem of arranged marriages. Mm-hmm. You can also make a case for her being an avatar of Isabel de Shewolf, Catherine yeah. de Medici, Catherine de Great, for a big stretch, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Mm-hmm who all in all seems to have had the happiest marriage of all of them, even though her husband put her in jail for 20 years. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And the other possibility, which I really love, is that she has things in common with Thomas Cromwell. (laughs) The whole way she got rid of Marjorie, the Mm -hmm. legal part, before she blew her up, Uh is so similar to how Cromwell got rid of Anne Boleyn. Down to, let's torture the musician. Right. Unbelievable. And Marjorie, who played Anne Boleyn, also having a number of parallels with Anne, including that she is she is falsely accused of sleeping with her brother, whereas, of course, Cersei is actually asleep, is correctly accused of sleeping with her brother. But... Right. Though now everybody says that George Boleyn was closeted gay, which may or may not be true, but everybody is saying mm-hmm. that now, as what Loris is. Right. The other thing I'm going to say about Cersei is the walk of shame. Yeah. The walk of shame is clearly what happened to Jane Shore. She's the one who Mm -hmm. was Edward's mistress. And then after he died, she joined with the other people. Right. She she was actually everybody's mistress. She 
She was Hastings' mistress. She was the mistress of Thomas Gray, who I think was Edward the Fourth's wife's son by a previous marriage. <laughs> and she was the go-between because everybody mm-hmm. trusts women and lets them right. just wander around carrying secret messages. And sometimes they do it. They're in the French Resistance and they're great. And sometimes mm-hmm. they're trying to get rid of Richard the Third and they're not. But at any rate, he really had her for treason. She's interesting also because Edward helped her divorce her husband for impotence. Uh-huh. And that doesn't happen every day. <laughs> no, although it's, it is interesting. It is definitely something that could happen. There's like some really interesting canon law debates about under what circumstances you believe women and to what extent they need to be then examined. Right. The, on the assumption that, you know, okay, if your husband's impotent and you were supposed to have been a virgin when you're married, when you were married to him, then you should still be a virgin, etc. I think he was in on it. He got a lot of estates. But anyway, so she's carrying out everybody and then she's carrying messages and they all get caught and she's arrested. They really seem to have a thing about let's not execute women. Uh (laughs) So Richard instead decrees, he doesn't do anything about the treason. She's sort of been accused of witchcraft, doesn't do anything about that. He says, well, you're very lewd. (laughs) Very lewd. And he was really, uh, as I said, like Stannis, real prude. So the prude called her lewd and makes her take the walk of shame. And she's walking the streets in the kirtle, kirtle, Mm -hmm. her outfit, not very, not totally revealing, but not really a cover up. Not nude the way Cersei is in the walk of shame, but in what's essentially the equivalent of underwear. She doesn't have any shoes because her her feet are ripped up. But she's Mm -hmm. educated and she goes through her walk and nobody's bothering her and mm-hmm. she goes through the walk reciting prayers in latin mm-hmm. <laughs> good for her yeah so that's the walk of shame yes recited prayers in, well that's what the saint of thomas More says. so who knows <laughs> so actually i i am gonna pause you because that's actually i think a good lead into talking a little more about some things that i have to say about women and gender right. in game of thrones One of the things that I actually have always liked about Game of Thrones is the fact that they have a number of examples of uh, powerful women who exercise power in ways very similar to the ways in which real but evil women exercise power. So as we already talked about, there are multiple analogs in some ways for Cersei, but not just Cersei. There's Olena Tyrell is is somebody who's this kind of family matriarch who clearly, despite the fact that she never actually rules, she clearly exercises a great deal of power by being this kind of family matriarch. Catelyn Stark, who clearly is extremely influential, well-respected most of the time by her son. That's why they match her up with Cecily Neville, who is the mother of Edward Clarence Richard, etc. Yeah. Right, yeah, so that she's somebody who is very kind of influential and clearly also, some, you know, was somebody whose advice her husband had respected as well. Right. And, of course, uh, Sansa Stark, who eventually does end up uh, kind of by the end uh, sort of reigning in her own right uh, as the daughter of a king, which is something that happened, you know, not always, but occasionally, but that she has a, she has a sort of complicated route to establish and exercise power, including the fact that people who have... Uh, a less strong claim than her, their claims are often taken more seriously. So while it is not exactly the same in many ways, uh, the fact that Sansa, you know, has a much better claim than John, but John is initially taken more seriously and acclaimed as King in the North. I I mean, that's very akin to things that really did happen in the Middle Ages. So for example, I mean, not Wars of the Roses much earlier, but Matilda, right. 
who is the daughter of the king, uh, the daughter of King Henry I. Her father very clearly expects and wants her to reign after him. And she is clearly the best claimant, but ultimately ends up basically losing out to a cousin, essentially because they don't want her because she's a woman. And so this man is considered to be more, having more serious claim. But it's the Wars of the Roses too, because Henry Mm -hmm. marries the daughter of Edward IV. And by now he's got rid of the titular. Edward the fourth. Yeah. Henry oh, yeah, the seventh marries yeah. a yes. Henry, Henry There's a lot Tudor, of Henry. So. Yeah. And you can't call him the usurper. He marries Elizabeth, who's the uh, daughter of Edward the fourth. He's gotten rid of Titulus Regis. She's clearly the next in line for the throne. And that's actually really what Ramsay Bolton does when marrying Sansa. So uh, that, that actually, that might be controversial in some circles saying that uh, Ramsay Bolton and uh, Henry Tudor are the parallels, but uh you know, but that's very much what Actually, he does. Actually, I love it. Is that he marries the person. So in the show, it is, of course, Sansa in the book, right. by the way, for anyone who's listening. Who's, yeah, in the book, it's not Sansa. It's some woman, basically, that they grew that they grew up with who is then passed off as being Arya, but is right. not Jane. Jane. Yeah, Jane Poole. But, you know, regardless, he attempts or successfully marries the person who actually has the claim to the title that he wants to right, hold right, right. as Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North. But anyway, but to go back in general, in the medieval world, it is, again, it's relatively uncommon, but not unknown, that there are women who do rule entirely in their own right. And in particular, there's a number of examples from the Iberian Peninsula. But you really do see women exercising power in the main way that women really did exercise power, that essentially they do so in a variety of ways through their husbands and sons. They hold positions as regents. They hold in many ways kind of Catelyn Stark as kind of this uh, kind of figure who's almost acting as a sort of lieutenant almost of uh, first her husband and then her son. And, uh, you know, that's something that actually also has Iberian parallels. It also has French parallels, uh, Blanche of Castile. Mary of Guise. Right, Blanche, yeah, Marie de Guise. That there are a huge number of interesting, powerful women who I think, you know, there are clearly a lot of parallels in a kind of broad sense. And I think overall, Game of Thrones does a good example of that. And if you even kind of go a few levels down and talk about women's lordship as opposed to queenship, then it's even there are even more potential examples that it was in fact not especially uncommon even for women to essentially be lords in their own right that that didn't have quite the same complicated political dynamics as women being reigning queens and so you know Eleanor of Aquitaine for example you know I mean so she's never a reigning queen of England she is the reigning lady but essentially reigning lord of Aquitaine and it's very clear that in Aquitaine, they don't care what either her of her husbands have to say about anything. They care about or her, which that they consider her to. their lord. She's married to. They don't care. Right, yeah. I mean, they don't, yeah, like neither Louis VII nor Henry II are considered ever by the nobles of Aquitaine to have any real meaningful authority over right. them. And so the show has a lot of great examples of women exercising power in realistic medieval ways. And Lady also kind of, yes, right. Yeah, and also of like having power often, but not exclusively through men. And I think that it does a really good job on that in a lot of ways. But otherwise, if you're not a queen or a lord, you're a prostitute. I see that. (laughs) Yeah, so that's the big problem that I have with the show, especially as somebody who does uh, medieval social history and works mostly on women who are of kind of the middling classes, 
that, and I'll get to the fact that those classes are essentially absent, but that is the thing that's very frustrating is that you're either a princess or a prostitute in Game of Thrones. And the only real kind of working women and the only other women besides these elite noble women are prostitutes. And there are a lot of prostitutes. <laughs> Two less than there were at the beginning of the show, thanks to Joffrey. Right. And including like in the, the, the early seasons, especially do this like bizarre thing where they have these like exposition prostitutes where you have people explaining Men. basic things about the plot or their motivations while they're fucking a prostitute or while two prostitutes are fucking each other. And so like we find out like half of like the basic stuff, like Littlefinger basically explains like everything about who he is while like directing two prostitutes to, to have sex with each other, which is extremely gratuitous. The only other woman who has a quote middle-class job that we don't like her is the Dothraki, that not the Dothraki, the witch. She has a real job. Yeah, that she's this kind of healer woman, right? And that, you know, that is a job. And that is, that's it, yeah. Yeah, but that other, and I get, well, I guess actually there's a, there's a, the waif, Arya's uh, nemesis in Bravos. Well, there's all all the Bravos women, actually, because there's the waif, there's the actress. Right, yeah. So outside Westeros, there are more examples. Which is weird. Yeah, that is interesting. But you definitely do not have any, you know, you don't have anywhere the examples of the kind of real life, like there are women who were merchants in various places. There are women who were, there's a ton of women who were involved in the textile industry. Even landlords. Yeah, and then we kind of see servants here and there, but we don't actually hear anything about them. No brewers. Right, exactly. Like women controlled the, yeah, as we've talked about before, women controlled the brewing trade. Women in in England, women in Catalonia actually controlled the baking trade. And so we have all of these, you know, so like hot pie, hot pie should have, hot pie should have been a girl. That actually would have, you know, potentially made a lot of sense. So that is definitely something that's very frustrating is that you, you don't have any of these, uh, women any of these working women who have agency and who have jobs you just have these kind of vaguely oppressed prostitutes and and that's the thing too is that also i mean we know a lot about medieval sex work and i actually don't even think it's an especially good representation of medieval prostitutes who you know had a lot of interesting kind of solidarities between one another there's been a lot of great work about like prostitutes and their relationships with one another and uh, how they thought about themselves and their honor and actually that they did have a concept of honor like there's a lot of great stuff and interesting stuff that you could actually say about prostitutes that's also not in this Hmm. either the prostitutes in game of thrones are really as i they're really just sex objects Oh, and the other person, of course, is Brienne. Yes, who, to the extent I would say that Brienne has a parallel, I mean, there there really are relatively few women who have a kind of military involvement. The closest parallel, I think, is probably Joan of Arc. That's the only one, yeah. And maybe arguably some of the kind of Viking warrior women, although that gets complicated because we don't actually know exactly how many of them are real as opposed to just things that show up in legend. But they never compare her in all the research I've done to somebody like, I can't pronounce her name either, Boudica, Boudicea, whatever her name is. The one who tried to, she really didn't like the Romans and burnt down London. She's very... Right. I mean, but but she has a whole history of rape too, so maybe we don't. But yeah, no, the the Brienne thing is mostly parallel to Joan of Arc, but really mostly because she's wearing men's clothes and armor, nothing else. And I guess she calls herself the maid, and Joan is the maid, 
And that's yeah. really it. And, you know, if that's all you can do for a woman in armor, armor as a avatar, that's pathetic. I mean, well, to some, I mean, because there weren't actually a lot yeah. of women in armor who really had military training and skills. That wasn't something that, you know, in the medieval world was typically done. And so it's, you know, very unusual circumstances like Joan of Arc, who basically like had a bunch of visions right, and said that this is what God wants me to do. Or it's, as I said, in the, in the Viking context, there's a lot of back and forth right now. There are some people who would say that the kind of allusions to warrior women are really something that's legend and there's not an evidence for them really existing in reality. Well, there there are other were the Amazons. They're real. I actually don't know exactly what the background is of the Amazons, but... Well, I did some reading of it. I don't remember. Oh, in that book I told you about, Antigone Rising, mm-hmm. she said uh, she, has, she has a chapter on the Amazons, and I think she thinks that assumes that they're real and that Roman men really hated them. And, mm-hmm. like, it's a mark of honor to go out and kill an Amazon. And now they have right. all of them on, uh, what do you call them, those vases and on mm-hmm. things like the Elgin marbles. Yeah, let's go kill an Amazon, the girls. Right. But I think they were also afraid of them, and they were great mm-hmm. warriors. Yeah. But I think they were real. I think people believe in them. Yeah, and the Vikings, as I said, uh, there certainly is potentially, I would say, some pretty good evidence that there probably were some people who were biologically female or assigned female at birth, at least, who are warriors, although some of them might not have entirely identified as women. There's actually been some really interesting research on that. Yes, and there's, I bet there have always been women who dressed up as men and went to war. There certainly are. So actually, the interesting thing is, I'm sure there were, but there's actually most of the like really prominent stories of women cross-dressing in order to pursue an alternate, an alternate path. Those are actually women who became monks. Oh, and then there was the one who became a pope. We're not going to get what, into Pope, pope Joan. Joan. Of course, I forgot about Pope Joan. There's, of course, not evidence for Pope Joan well, being there a is. real If thing. our descendant says my great-great-grandmother was Pope Joan, there you go. But I think women were doing that at least as recently as the Civil War. Right, and there's a, I mean, there's a great story. There's a, there's a saint, Saint uh, Wilgefortis, who basically like was supposed to marry some dude and didn't want to and like prayed to God about it and God gave her a beard. Yeah, the bearded lady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she wouldn't have to get married. But yeah, no, no, it just seems to me that women with not, would always have done that. I mean, I have absolutely no proof for that whatsoever, except for the Civil War, and I'm sure they did it before then too. Right. And there's certainly, as I said, there's there's a decent amount of evidence for Women who dressed as men and men who dressed as women for various reasons. Some right. are people that we might, you know, at this point want to kind of identify as being trans. Some are not. Brienne is not, I would say. No, no. But that is the one of the best speeches in the show, which is Cersei's when she's sort of emotionally torturing Sansa during the Battle of Blackwater. Right. But she goes through this thing about my brother learned to be a warrior and I learned to be, uh, I learned to sew. And he inherits and I got sold off to a pig. And just that whole thing about yeah. I should have been born a man and I should do what I want to do. It was, it was very moving. Even if you don't like her, she was horrible in that scene. She was so mean to Sansa. 
that speech was very moving. And that's actually, I, I think Cersei is a brilliant character. And I low-key kind of like Cersei, to be honest, in part because I think she is actually, like, she's extremely intelligent. She's always very good at what she does. Uh, and, like, there are very, like, a lot of ways in which she is, like, very compelling. And I could watch an entire, like, eight seasons of just Cersei drinking and looking out a window and being a bitch. Like, I would watch bitch, that. Just looking out the window makes me crazy. <laughs> I mean, it depends well, why she's with. Looking at the yes. window, watching wildfire destroy the sept, sept, that was sept. very satisfying. Um, that oh, was a yeah. good view. <laughs> I could watch eight seasons of Cersei the Mean Drunk. Okay. Well, um, not when she's mean. She was so mean to Sansa. Well, but that's actually what I was going to say, is that I actually think the that scene is so brilliant because she's very much talking about how she feels that she should have been equal to Jamie and that she should have been treated the same way as Jamie. But that doesn't actually translate at all to her having any kind of solidarity right. with or respect for other women. Right. And that in particular, she basically says like, at some point she's basically like, I was sold off like a pig. And then Sansa says like, but you were Robert Baratheon's queen. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, you'll be Joffrey's, good luck. <laughs> the only thing I'm going to say about that episode, mm -hmm. I mean, before I say anything else, is that it was... Uh, I think it was written by George R. R. Martin. Oh, he wrote, okay. I think, like one a year or something. But at any rate, no. Well, then I'm going to comment on later on the fact that he got rid of the best part of it. So No, but he kept the best line. I would go out and, and seduce Stannis if it would do anything, but I'd, I'd have better luck seducing his horse. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, I mean, she's great. Like, I think, like, I think actually Lena Headey's performance in that episode, I think is fantastic. I think she is very much in a lot of ways, like in an episode that is interesting, I think she is actually really the high point and the kind of emotional center in, in a lot of ways of that episode. She is, and she's also one of the best performers from beginning to end. She really doesn't miss a beat. She's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, Lena Headey, I think, is a fantastic actress. And as I said, I kind of like Cersei, and I kind of enjoy, and I really enjoy Cersei, the mean drunk in this episode. But I do actually think the way in which she relates to Sansa and simultaneously recognizes aspects of her own experience in Sansa, but very much has no feelings of solidarity associated with that actually feels unfortunately very true to a lot of elite medieval women. And I mean, to some extent, I think like, you know, that's kind of one of the problems and one of the reasons that, you know, we don't have real attempts to achieve anything like gender equality is that intelligent, talented, elite women basically continue to just focus on maintaining their own power with an alliance with men and never had any kind of real solidarity with other women or any kind of sense that basically women should have more things available to them as opposed to I should have more things available to me. Right. And the, the other problem is what I was sort of half referring to before. For whatever reason, she will not reign in Joffrey. Right. Which also I think is... You know, I think I think that is something that feels true to me to some extent is that the kind of dance and balance of power very much is one in which she is reliant on Joffrey for her power. Right. But I can't remember which queen it was. Oh, it was somebody in France or something. 
It was fighting with Marjorie Terrell for power over Joffrey, who would have the yeah. most, was the same as, oh, Catherine de' Medici, whose mm-hmm. son was married to Mary, Queen of Scots. Right. Yeah. And it's the same thing, you know. I, you know, you have too much power over my son. I want the power over my son. So then there's certainly no solidarity there. If you, you're always in competition, whether yes. there's anything to compete over or not. It's actually also not dissimilar. I unfortunately cannot remember the other woman's name, but it's actually not dissimilar to how Blanche de Castille of Castile related to her son, Louis the Ninth's wife. That very much, like, it was essentially, oh, she shoot, treated it as a zero-sum... Oh, okay. co- it was um something de Provence, but I can't remember. Maybe Marguerite de Provence? I don't remember. I just remember the thrones. Not right. the thrones. <laughs> Right, then if you go to Saint Chapelle, I mean, you know, it's, so it's that's like a, that. Yeah, what do you call that? The Crown of Thorns, not Game of Thrones. Yes. Crown of Thorns. Yes, so, <laughs> yes, so Saint Chapelle is where they uh, located the Crown of Thorns and relic. It was and was son. Yeah, and it's very interesting because, like, that is what is very much emphasized is essentially, like, it's like almost this, like, ode to a mother son relationship. And there's actually some interest, there's an interesting book about the windows of the Saint Chapelle which talk about the kind of the kind of windows that involve Judith and Esther as models for queenship and uh, Judith, the much more active one being the one that she then associates with Blanche of Castile and Esther, the much more passive one being the one that she associates with Louis's wife, whose name I am not entirely sure. Oh, that's sure I remember. interesting. Yeah. But the other thing is related to what you were saying is that I, we have searched and searched and searched for a true two women relationship and there's next to none and even if there is they don't talk about anything yeah game of thrones for a show that has an immense amount of compelling women characters barely passes the bechdel test it i mean it does not pass as much as you think it as you think it should no there there are there's a conversation between caitlin and brienne yes about the girls about nothing really it's when they first meet and well, some, there's and, a later one that's about says, the girls. Hi, Lady Brienne. I like you. And Lady Brienne says, I'm no lady. Just call me Brienne. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, and later it's about the girls. But at, that relationship was much better in the book. It was, yeah. Um, and also, so for the listeners, we uh, we chose about, I think, what, nine episodes that we actually rewatched oh, wow. in preparation for this. So uh, there's going to be some things that are going to be based on, rooted in a lot of detail based on episodes we've seen <laughs> recently and some things that are vague memories from things we watched a decade ago. Uh, Only nine years for me because I was always a year behind. <laughs> true. In the last season, I think there are, I think there are scenes with Sansa and Arya that pass. But they... You know, I'm not, I really don't know how much they do. As somebody said, whether they're acting it out for Littlefinger or not acting it out, they're still sparring with each other like yeah. a 10 and an 8-year-old. Right. And a lot of it is, you know, related to Littlefinger and how they're kind of maneuvering that. You know, there's also, there's a truly fantastic scene with uh, Olena Terrell and Marjorie talking to Sansa. What? And I think it's a great scene, but it is very much like them trying to find out from her basically what Marjorie's getting herself into with marrying Joffrey. And, you know, there's also like, I think that interaction between Sansa and Cersei, it's not nice, but I think it's a great scene. But again, like they're talking about men and their relationship with men in a kind of combination of general and specific ways. And there's the war council. 
which I totally don't remember reading yes. or seeing, but I saw it on YouTube, so it exists. Right. So then in the kind of later seasons with Danneries, there's the bit where she ends up basically allying with uh, this whole kind of crowd of women. So it's uh, what Olena Terrell and Diara Greyjoy and... There's a, the Sand Sister Mother. Yes. Uh, Elia? I think so. Elenia? Something like that. Martell. Mrs. Martell. <laughs> Dr. Martell. I think she actually is also Sand. Oh, okay. I thought she was Oberyn Martell something. Well, yes, but I think she's the also... The Dornish people. Yes, the Dornish people who are, yeah. The beautiful Dornish. Yes, although the Sand Snakes, the Sand Snakes are also wasted in the TV show, which is a different problem. Yes, they are. But then there's also the thing that, so, you know, you do have this war council and you do have this interesting kind of hint at this possibility of a kind of women alliance, of a kind of alliance between women and women's rulership. But I also have a lot of problems with how the show really squanders that in terms of the ways in which the show, I think, basically goes from zero to 60 in terms of making Danneries Targaryen insane and uh, cruel in a way that she, I think, is not without provocation and is not to people who are really genuinely innocent. Well, I, 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 um, I looked up today because I remember that like the Spartacus movie book, she had basically crucified all the slavers in Marines. But they're slavers. It's not only that. I looked it up. When she got to Marine, they had crucified a hundred children and arranged right. them so that they, she would see them pointing the direction yeah. of the Marine. So on so she's one responding level, to that. the things she does that and setting that whole house of fire, where the place where they wanted to put her in the house of the wives. The yeah. I mean, it seems so excessive and crazy. And then you like think about it and maybe it's not. These really were bad people who had done bad things. So I can't tell if anything led up to it that's the thing is that i think at least in terms of how it ended up playing out in the show it really felt to me like her attack on king's landing which continued after they'd surrendered and which involved murdering tons of innocent civilians felt really out of character and didn't feel justified by anything that they had done with her character any and developments that they'd actually done swore that she wouldn't do that she swore right. she wouldn't do that when she had that council of war with the women. Mm -hmm. And she swore she wouldn't do that when she had a meeting with Tyrion right before. So she right. twice swore. Well, the second time she didn't swore. She sort of avoided it. But, you know, you sort of hoped she was agreeing not to yeah. slaughter innocent people. But on yeah. the other hand, all these women, she had that, well, it's that Cersei has a, a thing, not her, but a lot of people, women have been accused of and probably did do very, very terrible things. I mean, Catherine yeah. de' Medici has always been accused of starting the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which was basically a civil war between the Protestants and the Catholics. It wasn't a well, war. Well, there was a civil because, war and because, then she just did a massacre. Because, yeah, because they massacred the, the Huguenots. I mean, and she is arguably, except for Jean Plady, everybody else I think, believes she's behind yeah. that. 
And that, that I will say is the thing is that bothers me is that so when you're looking at medieval and early modern source material, I think it is actually material from the time. Yes. Primary material from the time. I think it is very clear that there is a hostility toward and willing to denigrate and present as uh, irrational and present as insanely cruel in various ways, women rulers. Remember the horse and Catherine, the Empress of Russia and the horse. Right, or that they have these kind of bizarre sexual <laughs> appetites, according, you know, so that right, Catherine right. of the Great, you know, and, you know, later in Russia is claimed to have, like, have had sex with their horse. That I think there is this, need and to denigrate women rulers as there being something deeply wrong with them that happens in a lot of medieval and early modern primary source material. And that's something that, you know, one of the tasks of historians working on these medieval rulers, women rulers, is to tease out, A, what's real and what's a way of insulting them, but also that even in the cases where some of them certainly were ruthless and not great people, but in what ways are they being treated differently from men who behaved in very similar ways? That's, that's my point. Do you think that part of the issue is that men do something, women do the same, but it's a problem when women do it because women aren't supposed to act that way? I think that's definitely at least part of it, yeah. As I said, I think a lot of the nasty things that are said about real medieval women rulers, I think some of them are made up, but I think of a course. lot of them are basically things that a man would not be vilified for in the same way. Uh, yes, absolutely. That for men, that kind of ruthlessness was a dedication and perseverance and strength. And in a woman, it's uh, this crazy bitch. I don't understand why anybody vilifies Isabel the She-Wolf. Well, I guess Colt. Well, Isabel of France, which call Isabel of the She-Wolf you've given it. But she got rid of a terrible ruler. Everybody yeah. hated him. Right. I mean, Edward undoubtedly was giving too much power to people based on his personal relationships yes, with them. Yes, the nobles so, all hated him. Why isn't she yeah. a hero? Right. But you know, that's very much is that, you know, basically she is a woman who, you know, cheated on and then was involved in the murder of her husband. But honestly, like, if, it, well, you know... when orchestrate, I think, involved yes. a little. <laughs> yes. I mean, even her son hated her. She put her son on the throne, her son hated her. Right, but, you know, plenty of men who deposed bad rulers and took over in their stead are not treated the same way that she is. Right. And so, you know, that's very much something that, yes, there are ways in which I think, you know, Game of Thrones does kind of interesting things in terms of, you know, a character like Cersei, who is vilified for good reason, but is to some extent rendered partially sympathetic. But on the other hand, I think especially when you get into that last season, I think the way in which they deal with Daenerys feels basically just like the showrunners are reproducing those same disgusting misogynist tropes about women rulers that we see medieval chroniclers doing. The difference is Cersei is terrible and she has her flaws. I mean, her weaknesses, the fact that she cannot control her son starting from mm -hmm. the very beginning when I think you're supposed to believe that she did reach a deal that Ned Stark yeah. would be sent to the wall and Jeffrey has his head cut off. I don't yeah. think she's behind that. And right. then there's another scene 
that we watched where they try to kill Tyrion during Blackwater. Mm-hmm. And then there's a later one, which we didn't watch for this podcast, where he goes to Cersei and says, "Did you? was it you? Who? There's only two people who right. can give orders to the Kingsguard, because the person who right. tried and to kill the and Kingsguard. Yeah. So it's got to it's be one or the other. Yeah. And she doesn't say anything. He says, got to be Joffrey. She has no control yeah. over him whatsoever. But anyway, my, if I could get back to the end of my sentence... We don't have to like her, but you sort of love her as a character. Mm-hmm. I don't think Danneries has that. I don't think you love her, and the end of it is just lazy writing. Yeah, and I think that is definitely part of that, is that I think, I mean, I have issues with her ending, but I think Cersei is actually a an exquisitely developed character and I think Danneries in like the last season, they got lazy, gave up and said, we yep. want to get her to the point where she's a crazy person. And they didn't do the work to actually get her there. Right. Which is just, by the way, it also like, I mean, it's not deliberate, but it's this weird mirroring that you have these medieval chronicles that are extremely flattering of these women when they're the king's wife or daughter or sister. And then she's in charge and all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, no, she's oh, garbage funny. and we hate her. <laughs> but it's it's the same. That's why I think it's just lazy. Everything Cersei did, you can ask, she did this, she did this, she did this. And then in the last thing, all she does is look out the window. You have what would be foreshadowing if you thought the writers knew what they were doing. That she's looking out basically that same window and watching the sept blow up. But she planned that. She wanted it. She was taking revenge. She worked very hard. She found the Mm -hmm. leftover, you know, wildfire. And then at the end, she just looks out the same window, has a, has a, you know, chugging her wine and has no thoughts, no ideas, no plan, no nothing. I don't believe it. Well, how did this woman become paralyzed in the face of danger and that's the big flaw in that last episode the bells is that i think their characterization of pretty much all of the major women characters in that episode completely goes out the window danaries is nuts out of nowhere cersei completely loses her agency and becomes completely powerless as does Arya. oh see i'm not sure i agree in the about this episode they were like basically like well we want to like have somebody who we can follow the destruction through who's like essentially being treated as this like ordinary person i really much feel like it's a way that we've we've seen Arya grow out of being powerless and for eight seasons that that has been Arya's arc and then they return her to this extreme powerlessness it's not even it's not even totally that it's uh, since when has Sander Clegane spent eight years wanting to take revenge on his brother? He has never said that once. So the whole conversation's ridiculous. Right, and then he says to Arya, oh, you don't want to be like me. And then she's like, oh, yeah, sure, okay, and just leaves. If she'd stayed in that room for, like, 15 minutes more, she could have killed Cersei and then left and would have probably been in the exact same situation. But the problem is that also the white horse... I mean, I saw a movie where the white horse was like the dead mother of these young children taking them back to the right. where they came from in Ireland, and that's really the only thing I could think of. That white horse, which is so clean. <laughs> right. That's like our dead mother. So oh, the spirit of Catelyn Stark. What are they doing there? <laughs> right, and it's, it's just, you know, and it really just is like, I mean, so Arya kills the Night King in the episode, what, the episode before that? Two episodes before that? 
No, I think the Night King was like a whole different season. That's what was so dumb about the no, whole thing. No, that's that season. Oh, it was early. It was maybe, it was earlier in that season, but it was that season. But it was the whole thing. I mean, that season was so rushed. That's like a whole is floor, the other problem. You know, starting from the very beginning, this show is about the North has to defend Westeros against the White Walkers. Well, the battle mm-hmm. takes five minutes and we're done. Let's go home and like worry about something else for the next four episodes. Bye. Right. But yeah, but it is, I do feel like they like, they gave Arya, who, you know, is a character that I love and Arya murdering the, all of the phrase is that like the most moment. I've ever like actually stood up and like out loud cheered at anything ever. <laughs> and like, I did it again when I rewatched it. And like when, you know, and you know, when Arya like murders Walder Frey and then says like, by the way, I am Arya Stark. Like the that's just so I've satisfying. I stood up and applauded and broke my, really hurt my back was when Notre Dame beat UCLA's 100 game basketball winning streak. <laughs> <laughs> so was... your version of it so my version of that moment is Arya Stark murdering Walder Frey <laughs> and then she did it again the beginning of next season it was very confusing well so the next season she is Walder Frey she's oh, wearing right, his right, right. face very confusing. but they're and that's good too but there really was something about like where she's where he's like I keep calling my dumb sons where are my dumb sons and she's like they're right here my lord and that comes straight right out of, of Shakespeare. And that comes str- and he stole it. What's Titus Andronicus, Greek or Roman? Roman, and that's a Shakespeare play, but he yeah, got yeah. I mean, for but it. he got it from the Rome. So that you know, yes. I mean, Martin will is an equal opportunity. Yeah, homage. Well, and it's also, uh, and that has Greek roots. I mean, Medea uh, murdered her sons and said, yeah, but she didn't them put it in a pie. I don't think the Greeks really did pies. <laughs> yes, they do. They did them in Philo. Maybe it was a Philo pie. Have a Spanish Have a Spanish Your sons are in it. <laughs> but yeah. So, at any rate, no, that was great. But you know, on the other hand, are you supposed to think that when Arya doesn't kill Cersei, that it's a growth moment? It's hard to see it as it's because she's going to yeah. die. I mean, those are her choices. I mean, assuming she believes Clegane, and I think she does, those right. are her choices. Stay here, kill Cersei, and die, or give it up and have a nice life. But then we watch the episode, and I actually don't think that even makes sense based on how they play out the episode, yeah. because if she stayed in the room for 10 minutes, she could have killed Cersei. I mean, Cersei has many immense yeah, but skills, but like military ones are not among them. Well, like Arya could kill hand, her in a minute. Clegane probably would have been... Well, the whole idea of Clegane dumping Cersei to go fight with his brother when he really doesn't even have a brain is ridiculous. Yes, but given that that's how they set it up, if she'd followed him, she could have just murdered Cersei while zombie Clegane was paying zero attention because he had stopped giving a shit. And then she probably, as I said, that would have delayed her by like five minutes and I don't actually buy that would have made a difference. See, what I thought was more interesting was her trying to save that woman and daughter and by trying to save them, they die. Yes, and that bothers me too, actually. That really bothers me that she, 
is set up and that like, I, I wouldn't have bothered her. It wouldn't have bothered me that like, she's kind of going through this and she's like suffering and in pain and having a hard time. It wouldn't have bothered me if she'd like saved somebody or something that it just felt like she was so helpless to Brit. She was helpless. She couldn't protect herself and essentially survived by accident. She couldn't protect anyone else and even her help and her helping them in fact, actually arguably like made them die faster. At least certainly didn't help. And that just really bothered me is that it just made her helpless and incompetent in a way that we'd seen eight seasons of her becoming not that. It kind of turned her back into basically this like little girl who couldn't protect herself or anyone else. And, 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 the, I hated and it. what about her end? The fact that oh, she and it's goes ridiculous. off and becomes that she and Grey Worm are going to different places and they're both Robinson Crusoe? What, what the hell was that all about? Oh no, it's ridiculous. And there's no justification for that bearing what Arya wanted. I actually think it would have made much more sense for Arya to have been the the thing that I, the end that I end is kind of getting ahead of, you know, some other things, but uh, to talk about in the episode, but the, but the, uh, the end that I actually wanted to, would have wanted to see for Arya that I think would have made more sense with her character would have been to see Arya as uh, basically Sansa's Kingsguard. You know, I can't see that because I honestly cannot see Arya working for anybody. I think Arya has hmm. a real problem. I'm not, I don't think they found the right solution. But right. the problem with Arya is that she really does have to be totally independent. And I don't know what she right. could possibly have been doing. Right. I, I think that might have worked. I think it would have been an interesting way to handle their relationship and their eventual, like, kind of coming to work together. And... Uh, like almost Arya as a basically kind of like combo like hand slash Kingsguard. But Arya doesn't really have the know it all and and play. I don't know what she should be. I think she should anything she should be like a hired assassin. I mean, you could have that be the case. A hired assassin is not I think a Take hired back assassin. To Bravos. Have a run Bravos. I think a hired assassin as the Kingsguard for Sansa Stark ah. makes more sense ah, than ah. Braun as Master of Coin. Ah. Well, we're going to go there later. Thank you.